Hey there, before we get started, just a little disclaimer. The following episode is going to be based on a topic that some people may find a little sensitive. That is black history, faith communities, non-belief, and the way those things all play on each other. With that said, we welcome you. But if you feel like you may want to put this off for another time when you're ready to go down that rabbit hole, this is a good time to put it in the saved folder and come back whenever you're ready. Otherwise, let's go. We're back on this episode, the conclusion of Reimagining Community, how we form it, maintain it, hold it accountable, reconcile it, and how we discard it if it gets to that. We discuss one of the biggest challenges we face moving through life and all of its stages, and we'll talk with Dr. Sabrina Dent about her lived experience reimagining community. This is your faith to you? Senator, personally, um, my faith is very important. Um, but as you know, there's no religious test in the Constitution under under Article 6. And there will be none with me. And <laughs> um, it, it's very important to set aside one's personal views. Yeah about things in the role of a judge. I couldn't agree with you more, and I believe you can. So uh, on a scale of one to ten, how faithful would you say you are in terms of religion? You know, I go to church probably three times a year, so that speaks poorly of me. (laughs) Or do do you attend church regularly? Well, Senator, I am reluctant to talk about my faith in this way just because I want to be um, mindful of the need for the public to uh, have confidence in my ability to separate out my personal views. As we know, more people than ever, especially young people, are disengaging from these institutions of faith. The social policy achievements of the Obama years, post-racial talk, and its related comforts have shown themselves to be wavering at best and completely false at worst. Fights over settled law are being relitigated as I record these words by neo-Christian fascists, as Sakibu Hutchinson calls them, or the white nationalist party, as Dr. Carr calls them 
and the people who love them and or those who act as their apologists. Frankly, people who never saw us as equal to begin with, younger and older generations who once had soaring hopes are now disillusioned about both the past and the future. And so understanding all of that, that for black people, our faithfulness will never be seen as equal or legitimate in the eyes of the white nationalists, no matter how much we claim Christ or hold up the bloodstained banner. Now more than ever, how we form, keep, and reimagine community is essential. essential. Dahlia Lithwick, really easy to amicus. say, oh, come on, when Marsha Blackburn says, maybe Griswold is up for grabs. Everybody's response is like, haha, she's such a dope. Nobody opposes birth control. This is the like soaring percentage of Americans who use birth control. Or when you hear like a Kinsley gaffe that maybe, you know, loving the anti-miscegenation case is also on the table and everyone's like ha 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 that's so funny right uh, Katanji Brown Jackson is in an interracial marriage this is all not going to happen it's just super important to realize that the numbers supporting Roe are also extraordinarily high it actually has nothing to do with what polling supports and to say oh but they're never going to go for um, marriage equality they're never going to go for birth control they're already going for birth control they're already going for marriage equality. And the other note that I think is important to lace into this conversation is that it's always posited as a fight with religious freedom, right? It's not simply that we have doubts about Obergefell, but asking the nominee, given the choice between this unenumerated fake made up right and this First Amendment protected right to religious liberty, uh, which one do you privilege? And so I think it's always in conversation with this larger notion that people who are religious should get to opt out of anything uh, that we see as modern-day civil rights. Here to give us insight and her lived experience on what this means is my friend, allied to our community, interfaith and religious freedom advocate, Dr. Sabrina Dent. We met a few years ago when she was doing work with the Religious Freedom Forum. She's also worked with Americans United and was most recently named president of the Center for Faith, Justice and Reconciliation based in Richmond, Virginia. I'm your host, Roger. We'll be right back with Dr. Sabrina Dent after this break. what? We've got mail. Or should I say, where we're headed has got mail. In addition to the show website, which is at www.podbean.com, where you can find all relevant information from past episodes, links, resources, and so much more. We've got a new email address where you can reach out and you can send comments, you can send suggestions, and you can also send voice notes with your own personal touch. Send us your feedback, give us a compliment, or give us a suggestion. You can reach us at bndcpodcast at gmail.com. That's bndcpodcast at gmail.com. And once again, our show website is www.podbean.com. Okay, no lie. The Puritan one with Paula. Ciao. This is fire. I'm telling you, y'all got me fired up. I, I can relate. trying to be mindful of time. So like I said, I have so much that I can share. So reimagining community means asking the questions, who is my community? What is my responsibility to that community? How do I advocate for my community? And in what ways can I engage and mobilize my community? These are important questions that everyone needs to ask when thinking about reimagining their community, um, especially when you're thinking about a position of support. Um, that's one of the reasons why I intersect. That's one of the reasons why I really value the work of Black nonbelievers and what Mandisa and Roe and all of you are doing. 
because you're creating a space and a community for those uh, that have identified as humanists or as non-religious and those that are questioning their religious identity and without judgment. And so there was a program that I I watched Mandisa was on um, a couple of weeks ago, and she talked about how people um, how people still embrace the black church, you know, because it's culturally that community. And so it's about reimagining why people associate with communities in some ways too. And I don't say that people should associate with a community that causes harm to them. Um, your human dignity matters more than anything. Um, but that's something that you have to deal with for yourself and say how much you're willing to tolerate. So for me, it was looking at the moral injury of religion. Like in my life, what I experienced, even once I once I went from Pentecostal to Baptist, there was this moment when I went back to my home church to preach. And I remember um, having this moment of realizing because someone said something to me that I wasn't Christian enough. Like being Baptist wasn't even Christian enough for them. Or asking the questions or people wondering like, what is your religion? Like always want to know or always assuming that I am Christian or that, you know, because I'm a part of many different groups, like that this is, this is a particular identity that I, you know, say I am. And they're all a part of my foundation and I don't reject any of them because all of them shape me to be who I am. But also the moral injury of religion came from my interfaith community when some people were like, Black Lives Matter? Like why? And so I had to look at that more deeply. So that led me to some of my doctoral research and I'll try to go through these slides quickly because I'm trying to also be mindful of uh, the time. Um, is that, you know, I had to like re-examine some things. Although I had reimagined my community, like for me, I had to look at the ministry context that I was a part of was interfaith leadership. Like it was just like, okay, what are you saying? I realized that in that space that people valued the golden rule. And then I valued also moral imagination. That means holding people in care without exception. And I learned that from um, Dr. Nate Walker, who wrote this book about cultivated empathy. It's a really good book. And, you know, he and I had to go through our own journey of reimagining. Um, and then, but I also had to look at the problem that kept coming up in these interfaith spaces. And that was systemic racism and this notion of spiritual freedom versus human dignity. So in my research, I also had to look at who are we as a country? Like, we're a diverse nation. We're not founded as a Christian nation. And people need to realize that, that the founding framers never intended for this to be a Christian nation. It was to value diversity. Um, and so there's a lot of religious diversity. There's a rise in the religious nuns in the United States. And people need to recognize that. People need to recognize that although someone may identify as Christian, that their, uh, their other identities may have a, play a different role in and they're being a part of that community. And as you can see here, this is an infographic from the public religion research um, from 2016. Um, and um, from, and well, from 20, uh, 2013, but also 2016, there was just like very slightly a shift and even now, but the religious nuns continue to grow as you know this as um, a particular group. What the religious landscape in America in 2016 looks like, and it continues to, to, to image this, is that, again, a larger population of individuals identify as unaffiliated. And one of the things that I value about like education and being in the space that I am in now is that um, I can't remember what organization hosted this program um, a couple months ago, but even how they reimagine, like when we're talking about the nuns, we need to be very specific. Like just because someone is unaffiliated doesn't mean that they're secular humanist or atheist or um, a free thinker. It's like, you know, that person, we need to give space for that person to self-identify. And so what you see is there's a change in the religious landscape. What the media wants you to believe is that there is this huge influx of Muslims coming into the country and that they're taking over. And that's not the truth. The reality of it is there's still a small percentage of those that identify religiously in America. And you see the same thing for Jewish and also for Buddhists. But it, it, it's we have to recognize like there is religious diversity in the United States. And it's not, and it's only going to continue 
continue to grow. Um, white evangelicals are shrinking. And so people are leaving their congregations for many different reasons. Um, probably some of the reasons why I left mine. But um, so it's important to recognize that. For me, it was about going back to, as Rose said, I say human dignity is my religion, right? It was recognizing the problem. And for me, what I saw is that many interfaith leaders have had the tendency to overlook racism and minimize the social beliefs that threatened the plight of um, racial minorities in America. And so this was often ignored because they found the need to uh, address spiritual freedom over hum human dignity. And so for me, it comes down to that if you do this, if you say you're an inclusive community, but you're exclusive and you have this blind spot about issues that impact everyone and all of their identities, then you're really hypocrites of the mission that you proclaim. And so I really did this doctoral work around this. And so these are some of the facts that I looked at and um, like for the brevity of time, it's just this, this is, and these are just some points in history. When you have to look at the timeline of events that happened that impacted not just African-Americans, but actually Asi Asiatic Turks and people who identify as Japanese in America. And so there's so many pieces of legislation that have like, impacted the lives and the livelihoods of people no matter what their religious identity was because it started back in 1787 when the founding framers sat in a room in philadelphia and thought it was okay to overlook slavery although there is one controversial person in history governor morris who was one of the 55 delegates who was the only one who spoke out against um the horrors of slavery but they rejected him, of course, because most of them were slave owners, right? And so what does it mean when you have the founding of this country that starts off with the exclusion of people, the exclusion of women, the exclusion of poor people, the exclusion of blacks, the exclusion of indigenous people, and then you shape policies to continue to reflect that. How do you reimagine community? Are you currently on a faith journey of your own? Are you questioning, seeking to find community in a way that's outside of traditional religious institutions? Or reimagining yourself in relationship to your community and your surroundings as a formerly religious person? You're not as alone as you think you are. There are communities and people and organizations that exist to help people like you in your own journey along the way of life, in your questions, in humanism, free thought, in social justice, education, LGBTQ advocacy, scholarships, and more. You are absolutely not the only one. There are others like you, and we're organized, we're engaged, we're active, we're protesting, communicating, and we're trying to live healthy lives as best and ethically as we possibly can, and to have a little fun along the way. Learn more about some of these organizations, like the ones that have produced this podcast, Where We're Headed. You can find out more at American humanist.org and blacknonbelievers.org. That's the American Humanist Association at americanhumanist.org. And on Facebook, search us at Black Nonbelievers of DC and Black Nonbelievers at blacknonbelievers.org. Find us online, support today, check us out. And so, um, so you, you're, there are so many things that, you know, and I can answer this and I could talk more about this in the Q&A, but even how race was redefined in the country and what it meant to be a citizen. Initially, it meant that you had to be a white male who was land owning and you had property and you had voting rights. Whereas when the Emancipation Proclamation happened, it set us free, but it didn't give us voting rights. So, um, and although there is the 14th and 15th Amendments that are in place, we also know with the Reconstruction era, there were many things, um, there were many barriers that prohibited people of color from voting. But also looking at how citizenship was redefined, um, this is a picture of um, Sakawa Ozawa. He's a Japanese man who was seeking citizenship in the United States. And and when he went um, to court for this, they basically told him, and this is after they had already determined that Asiatic Turks and could be, could be identified as white, they basically told him what it means to be white in America is determined by the common man, but this is the law. 
right? So there's so many layers that we could talk about here. So in my research to go through this, my thing was like, okay, if we examine the social beliefs of these interfaith leaders on the topic of race and human dignity, and if we help educate them about some things um, as it pertains to the legal construction of race and implications for religious um, minorities in America, and then if we engage them in diverse theological, political, and social, and racial um, people from different backgrounds with different stories, then hopefully that will equip them to, to better address um, modeling compassion towards marginalized groups. And so I did that in many ways. I used the Project Implicit. Uh, I used this powerful documentary, Race, the Power of an Illusion. If you've never seen it, I highly recommend it. And I also borrowed from the work of Dr. Walter Fluka Inter and focusing on what's your story. And so I felt like that would equip people to like make a difference in terms of their beliefs. Just, um, just to just to fast go forward through this. What I learned in my research was that you know a lot of people didn't think about the impact of these issues on communities of color and how it intersects the interfaith um, tables and why we should talk about this. But I had to move to reimagining community um, in a different way. I had to move from theory to practice for myself. Although I was really living it, I really needed to do this more in my work. And so, um, so I ended up working at the Religious Freedom Center. And I should backtrack to say, um, Ro mentioned that I, I did. I worked at um, the Samuel D. Wood Proctor School of Theology in Richmond, Virginia. And um, it was a very special place for me to be a part of. And I worked very closely with Dean Kenny. And so before I ended up going to the Religious Freedom Center, Center, there was this moment where, you know, I went to Dean Kenny and I said, you know, it, it's a long story, but I said to Dean Kenny, I had to go. Like, I left my job in Richmond, Virginia to come to Washington, D.C. And he said, why do you have to leave? I said, to go do my work. And he said, what is that? I was like, I don't know. And so I didn't. I didn't know what my work was, but I was in a doctoral program and I was like, okay, that's going to be my work. That's what I'm going to focus on. But um, the language that I use is I really believe that the universe like provided opportunities for me to engage. And so um, someone from the BJC who had observed me while I was there recommended um, that I check out this job for the Religious Freedom Center. So the Religious Freedom Center is a nonpartisan national initiative that focuses on educating the public about the First Amendment and religious freedom as a constitutional and human right. I left off right, excuse me. All right. Um, and we promoted dialogue and understanding of people of all religions and none. At the Religious Freedom Center, I had the privilege of working with people from over 30 different religious identities and none. We offered semester-long classes and week-long intensive courses. Um, we also uh, did community workshops and professional development, and we offered a lot of public programs. Um, we also provided tools and resources to religious and civic leaders, as well as educators and business leaders to help them think about like religious freedom in a different way in their context. Like, for and for in terms of education like how do you teach about religion academically and not confessionally in public schools right how do you in the workplace um give space for people who have different belief systems and not show preference towards one religion over another. And the religious and civic leaders, like, you know, religious leaders are being trained to think theologically, but they weren't necessarily engaging in civic um, in civic discourse about, uh, or, or uh, I should say civic literacy, like not looking at the legal literacy that helps shape uh, some of the things that we experience in our daily lives in the public square. And so also one of the things that the Religious Freedom Center does is host the Committee on Religious Liberty. This is a vast group. It's like over 75 different organizations um, that do uh, uh, domestic and international work on religious freedom issues. And so how we talk about religious freedom in the United States is different from how it's being talked about internationally. And so this image here is a cohort of our students from spring 2017. When I started with the Religious Freedom Center, I was the education advisor. So I had the opportunity to meet and engage so many different people. I actually interviewed almost every student that came into our program. So it provided like this dense, this deep sense of appreciation for me 
to really learn more about people's stories, which also helped shape um, some of the work that I did in my doctoral research. But in terms of legal literacy, it's important for people to remember that the First Amendment states that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting a free exercise thereof. Meaning there are two clauses in the First Amendment. There is uh, the free exercise clause, which means that people have the right to freedom of conscience and belief. They have the right to practice a religion or not to practice a religion, and the government cannot interfere with that. The Establishment Clause basically says that the government cannot show preference towards any religion over another, um, and that those things should remain separate. And so, um, so the government cannot go into a house of worship and say, hey, this is how you should define a religious leader. No, that's, that's not their business. So it's like it has to stay separate, and so there needs to be a separation of church and state. But on a global perspective, we have to recognize that there is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And this is so critical because in the United States, we have the opportunity to practice our, our, our freedom of conscience however we choose um, in many cases without some of the uh, practices or the, the ways in which people are discriminated in other countries. For some people in other countries, it means death. It means to say that you're a non-believer could mean like the end of your life. To say that, and just think about somebody with the intersect with so many intersecting identities. If someone is a black non-believer that is also a part of the LGBT community, say for example, who may live in Uganda, right? Like there are so many risks to that person's life. But what the Universal Declaration of Human Rights says is that everyone has the right to freedom of thought and conscience and belief they have the right to change their minds as individuals or even as a community and to do so in public or private. And so this is critical for us to understand that this right exists, but the application of it in many countries does not. And that is a problem. So I, I like to look at, you know, uh, what is diversity? And so for me, it's important to think about diversity is diversity is the acknowledgement um, of different groups, but not necessarily the engagement of it. And there are many ways in which we can define diversity. And as you can see from the first bullet point I have, um, diversity is associated with, um, is not necessarily, is, is more associated with tolerance and not acceptance, right? It's like, I see you, but. Right. And that's not what that's not how I want to live. Like, I don't want to be like, I see you, but it's like I see you and I want to engage you. Um, but engage the right person. It, it, I, when I posted about this event, I said, bring your healthy sense of curiosity. And I mean that healthy. Yeah, like you have to have a healthy conversation about it. That means you have to have a healthy sense of self. So I say that for me, I define religious pluralism as like this positive engagement with people of diverse religious, spiritual, and secular worldviews in order to gain understanding of the differences, right? And to really value those differences is so important. Um, I wanted to borrow from the work of my colleague, Ben Marcus, at the Religious Freedom Center, who talks about um, religious literacy um, and religious identity. And so, again, I want to point back to a conversation that um, um, Mandisa had in a previous presentation and talking about people that are transitioning or um, in, in search of their new identity, their new religious identity, moving from maybe religious to non-religious or even moving from one religious identity to the next, is that, you know, Ben talks about like the three B's framework of belief, behavior, and belonging, and helping people to understand that some people are a part of communities because of the belief systems. Like they really deeply hold on to the theologies and the doctrines, the sacred texts and narratives. Um, for others, when you look at the mundane, it could be about like they hold on to really the social values and the ethics of that community. Um, for in the context of sacred, when you're talking about behavior, it's about the rituals and the rites. Like, you know, like for example, if someone's a part of the, the uh, the Christian community, um, like for them, it might be about, oh, it's important that, you know, my family members are baptized or that we take communion and everything. Like that might be why that might be a big, a central part of their identity in that community. And they might be like, okay, whatever with the theologies, but I got to take communion, right? Um, or it could be, and you look at through the lens of the mundane, that it's about the habits and the daily 
daily practices that one does. Um, but then there is this whole thing of belonging, which brings us to this thing of community, right? It's like, in terms of belonging, some people identify with communities because um, of a trans-historical, transnational community for them, that it's uh, there is this deep embeddedness as far as the culture and related to them. There are many people that are in, um, in congregations and houses of worship and communities because of the cultural connection, not necessarily because they buy into the theologies. And I, that's one of the things that I appreciated about um, Mr. Wright's presentation last week and how he shared uh, about the, his many different identities and, you you know, he talked about how communities and uh, and how some people, again, sit in spaces that don't necessarily affirm who they are, but because it's the space that makes them feel comfortable. Like for me, like I don't necessarily go to, I don't go to church. I usually go if a friend asks me to support something that they're doing. Like it has to be a significant event, such as if they're getting, um, what is it, uh, like ordained or something, um, because I wanna support my friend. But when I'm there, yeah, I love the music. Do I necessarily agree with some of the, the words? But no, the music speaks to me because we come from a culture where music is central to our being, so. But in my work at the Religious Freedom Center, again, we had to reimagine. We had to reimagine what does it mean to talk about religious freedom by centering new and different perspectives, by centering African-Americans in this? And so we received a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation, which allowed us to do that. Um, so I intentionally did not um, say who this woman is in the image, but if someone wants to put it in the chat bar, I was curious to know if anyone knows who this woman is in the image in the blue. And we can mention, we could talk about it like when we get off screen, it's hard to like do this right now uh, with, this, with the slide, but this woman is a very important woman, as well as the woman that's in the black in the second image, Mandisa Thomas. Um, so in 2019, when I was working on this project and I'm still leading this project on um, religious freedom, African-American perspectives, my thing is every time I engage in the conversation, my thing was who's missing from the table? Who's missing from the conversation? So when we had at our first public program, we had um, Dr. Brad Braxton, who um led uh, the Center for um, the Center for African-American and Cultural Studies at the um, National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Please pardon me, uh, Dr. Eric Williams, if I stated the name of the center wrong, but he was at the Center for, um, at the, uh, at NAMAC. And so we had him as an expert. We had um, Dr. Yolanda Pierce, who's the Dean at Howard University School of Divinity. And we had um, Dr. Corey D.B. Walker. And so we're centering African-American scholars on this topic to talk about religious freedom, because the way religious freedom is spoken about is from a different narrative in the larger, in the global sense. Um, but it was like, we had to help people reimagine what this looks like as far as us. And so I was glad that in June of 2019, that Mandisa was a part of our panel, which was um, titled Disrupt Disrupting the Narrative, Centering African-American Perspectives on Religious Freedom. My thing was like, we need to bring in a non-religious person to be a part of this conversation. People need to see that not every black person is Christian, right? That there are black Baha'is, there are black Buddhists, there are black, there's so many different identities. And so Mandisa's voice was critical to this conversation. I see that something came up in the chat and I can't see what it is, Rose. So if I'm short on time, let me know and I'll move faster. Um, again, You're disrupt good. the narrative. Um, was one of the program was the program that we hosted, but it was about also reimagining who we were bringing into the conversation. So again, you see leading scholars on this project were people of color that were engaging us. So it was religious leaders, it was uh, activists, it was, um, it was uh, legal experts, it was historians that were a part of this conversation. But the other image that you see are, these are seminarians. These are seminarians that took a week long to think more deeply about civic engagement and also to think about religious freedom in a different way. And I'm gonna fast forward this through this infographic, but it's from Pew Research that you know shows the religious diversity among African Americans. 
And I also believe that in my work, I talk about dialogue and how it's important that if we reimagine a community that we need to engage in dialogue and understand that dialogue is an encounter with difference and it's a process of understanding. Um, it's not about engaging in a debate with someone. Um, a debate determines that there's a winner and a loser and that's not what you're seeking to do. You're seeking understanding. It's not a mediation. It's not, it's not about weighing the options. It's not about conflict resolution. It is really about gaining understanding of someone's perspective. And again, you see, this is from the Essentials of Dialogue, which is um, by the Tony Blair, or Generation Global, which was the Tony Blair Faith Foundation, has this resource and it's available online for you to use. And what I often help people to understand, and I'm grateful to my colleague, uh, Reverend Kristen Farrington, who introduced me to this work of dialogue, who helped people to understand that when you're engaged in dialogue, it doesn't mean that you have to give up your deepest beliefs. It's just a, it's a, it's a specific type of conversation where you're engaging and thinking deep, uh, deeply and differently. And so I really believe that dialogue is important because it challenges the narratives that promote binary views, them versus us. It also helps you to critically think about issues, domestic and global. It's also about engaging confidently with genuine curiosity, again, that healthy sense of curiosity with those um, who are different from you, and as well as understanding their uh, perspectives and understanding that we are complex individuals and that, you know, we have many different identities and that we belong to many different communities and we've had different experiences. Each one of you have had different experiences, even within the community that you're a part of today. And so we have to acknowledge that. And so these are the five skills of dialogue, of having an open attitude um, that, you know, coming in with a healthy sense of curiosity, listening for understanding, um, and also asking the open-ended questions, uh, not with the intent to cause harm, but to really to uh, to really understand that person's perspective and speaking from the I perspective. Um, I've probably said it a couple times during this pre presentation. I was like, for me, ministry is. For me, this means this. So I'm speaking from my perspective, although I come from a larger community. And I know there are times when I will have to speak um, because I will be representing a community, but I think that is important that we speak from the I perspective and respond into the things that the person shares and see how it connects with us. And then also reflecting on um, our role in, in the dialogue. Like, what did we say? What was our body language like? Were we listening? You know, were we, you know, all of those things are important. What questions didn't we ask that we could have asked to help understand our new community? So the last thing, this is really important. What's at stake? the issues. Um, again, religious freedom, there are a lot of many different people and things that shape and influence our understanding about religious freedom. And so I'm going to go through these. One thing is I want people to understand that the state of the First Amendment is something that people need to be uh, aware of, is that, you know, 71% of Americans can correctly name, you know, at least one First Amendment freedom. Um, there are also 29% uh, that in this survey that was conducted by um, the Freedom Forum, um, the Freedom Forum Institute, uh, which is connected to the Religious Freedom Center, is our parent organization. They did this uh, First Amendment survey in 2019, and they found that 29% of people could identify freedom of religion as a right. And I thought that was very interesting because they had over a thousand respondents. And so when you think about how people like to throw around, you know, I have the right to religious freedom, but not everybody can name, you know, it as one of the first freedoms. That's something to think about. But what scares me on this slide is the bottom point is that 20, 29% of Americans believe that the freedoms of the First Amendment go too far. And when you think about it in terms of the intersection of people of color, is like we have really used all those freedoms to leverage our identities, whether it was in the press, whether it was in talking about our freedom of conscience or a connection to our religious communities, also in terms of how we've used speech and how we've used petition and how we've used protest. Like all of those things are, or assembly as is defined, um, are critical for us to think through. And so the fact that people think that it goes too far scares me as a woman of color in America.
So what's also at stake is this. The Public Religion Research Institute did a, um, they did a survey in 2019 that focused on, um, they asked this question in their survey of like, how many um, did small business owners, how many people believe that small business owners had the right to discriminate against people based on their religious beliefs? And so when you look at the numbers from 2014 into 2019, um, it is astounding, astonishing, but at some degree also, it shouldn't be too surprising for when we look at the state of affairs in the United States, especially keeping in mind what happened between 2016 and what's happening now. But this is a concern for me because people are then saying they have the right to discriminate against people based on their religious beliefs. So that's something that is at stake, which then brings me more into my practice, right? So I'm now with Americans United. Uh, we are a nonpartisan education and advocacy organization, and we were founded in 1947 by religious leaders. Now, just so you know something, that the majority of supporters for Americans United are non-religious people, um, but we have a, we do have a we have constituents who are also religious people. But the focus was to defend the separation of church and state. This was really central to looking at um, uh, private schools receiving public money um, and it, as it related to the Catholic Church. And this is a historic case that happened. And so that's really how Americans United really jumped onto the scene. Um, what, re what we believe is that religion should never be used to cause harm or to discriminate against a person. And um, the only way to ensure that religious freedom is, is to, to ensure that is religious freedom for all is via the separation of religion and government. And so we do this in many ways with high impact litigation, um, powerful lobbying, as well as grassroots advocacy. And my role there is the senior faith advisor. So these are some of the issues that are very critical in thinking about the Dunn versus Ray case um, and also the nuances to it. Like Dunn versus Ray, this is the case when Dominic Ray, a man down in Alabama um, who identified as Muslim, requested his imam to be present for his last rites of passage, and he was denied that right. And it went before the Supreme Court. Um, he was on death row, and there was a stay of execution. And then once, they, once the decision came down, they went ahead and executed. Um, Mr. Ray. The thing behind this is there was then a case in, I believe it was in Texas, where there was a Buddhist person that requested um, their religious leader to be present, and there was a stay of execution, and then there, there was this rethinking of um, the person's rights and the rights of religious freedom, the religious freedom rights of incarcerated people. So we need to think about how this looks intersectionally. Also, the case versus Trump versus Pennsylvania that was heard this year and talking about reproductive rights, um, health care, um, women's health care, and also abortion access, not to mention um, the Espinoza case that, um, again, focused on taxpayer money, uh, supporting private religious education. And then there is a case that's coming up that will be heard, unfortunately, the day after the election um, is, uh, is the Fulton versus uh, the city of Pennsylvania, where there was a case where a religious institution, um, it was uh, um, a Christian um, foster care agency discriminated against someone uh, based on their religious identities. And so I mean, you're talking about children that need a home and need a place to stay. So again, I'm thinking about how taxpayer money uh, is sometimes used to support uh, religious discrimination. And so I'm going to fast forward through this um, because um, Espinoza is, a, is an important case, and I encourage you to go to the Americans United webpage to learn more about Espinoza versus Montana. But in my work at, the, um, at Americans United, I had to, again, reimagine community and recentering um, people in the discussion. So Americans United, uh, Americans United has been an organization that has supported the separation of church and state and has been very strong on it. In my role, I've been very intentional about, let's say, let's reimagine who's leading the conversation. So in, um, we, we had a national advocacy summit where um, I organized a program called Dismantling White Privilege, Race, Religious Freedom, and Christian Nationalism, because we had to talk about Christian nationalism and these issues, right? Um, and so for me, it was important to have conversation partners that help us to take a different look at this. Let me look at the chat. Um, 
Oh, okay. Um, so I and so one of the things. Oh, I want to go back to the slide. Is that again and reimagine the conversation? I was very. Um, I was very intentional about making sure that we have voices represented. So you have Reverend Naomi Washington Lee part, if you know anything about her, she, uh, she was a part of the National LGBTQ Initiative. Um, and she is a religious leader that provides a different texture and flavor when you're talking about uh, church state issues and religious freedom um, in America. Then you have uh, Professor Kiati um, Joshi, who wrote this book, White Christian Privilege, um, The Illusion of Religious Equality in America. Then you have Amer um, Amanda Tyler, who is the executive director of um, the BJC, who is leading this endeavor on Christians against Christian nationalism. And so that's a very, um, it's a very important campaign that is being pushed forward right now to help people rethink um, how they're imagining um, religious freedom in America. And then also you have Robbie Jones, who wrote the book about white um, white too long, talking about the legacy of white supremacy within um, American Christianity. And Dr. Corey D.B. Walker, who is my colleague and friend, who is the professor of, um, the Wake Forest professor of the humanities, who does a lot of work around um, American democracy and, and reimagining these whole conversations about religious freedom as it pertains to race in this country. Also, again, a center in the conversation, it was about reimagine like in our partnerships. So we have partnerships with uh, the um, the national, uh, oh my goodness, uh, with the na the National Jewish Women's, uh, oh my goodness, I am so sorry, I, I'm messing up people's names today, but we partnered with many different organizations, um, whether it was Jew the Jewish Organization for Women, or whether it was the National Transgender Center for Equality, um, and we, we wanted to really center the concerns of people in this conversation around the hood anti-trans shelter briefing, and so for me, it was like, okay, let's bring people of color into this conversation. So you have um, pictured here is uh, Reverend Cedric Harmon, who leads Many Voices, which is um, a gay and um, a gay and transgender justice movement, um, Black Church um, justice movement. So what does it mean to have him to be a part of the conversation when we're talking about the anti-trans shelter rule? What does it mean to have Sharice Scott, who leads Sister Reach, who does work around reproductive justice and other issues that are important. What does it mean to have Reverend Alex Patchen McNeil, who is a transgender religious leader um, that is with more like Presbyterians? So again, it's about recentering um, who's a part of the conversation and doing this work, and again, reimagining what community looks like. And so based on everything that I said, I have a lot of recommended resources. As you can see, one of the books that I put was uh, Dr. James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree. It's a very critical book because um, before people were doing books about white privilege and everything like that, Cone was saying this for a very long time. Um, and then also um, Angela Davis. I, I'm very fond of Angela Davis and her work and her history and her legacy, um, which inspires me and her book. Um, Freedom is a constant struggle. She looks at like systemically how racism has played a, a big role in all of this. And so we can't overlook it. Um, also, I talked about Kyoto Joshi's book, but also Melissa Rogers, um, whose book, Faith in American Public Life. Um, it looks at the legal structures of things in America, but she makes it so plain and simple for you to understand that you don't have to be an attorney to read it. And it's an incredible resource. And I love how she tied into it at the very end of the book, she brings into it um, how it parallel, uh, parallels to the cries for humanity that are found in the Negro National Anthem, like, and how we, when we're having these conversations about religious freedom and separation of church and state, that we have to acknowledge the cries for humanity that came from the Black community in this conversation. And then also Tisha, Tisa Winger wrote this book, Religious Freedom, the Contested History of an American Ideal, which flipped everything in, in around 2017 when she talked about, she actually centered the experiences of African-Americans from a historical context 
in the conversation about religious freedom, even talking about the moral science, the more science temple and other groups um, that were targeted because of their identities um, that were seeking to be affirmed. And so um, there are other resources. Um, if you're not a book person, um, I highly recommend American Heretics, The Politics of the Gospel, which is a documentary that centers in the Bible Belt of Oklahoma. Um, one of the key people that are, um, that's featured in that is um, Bishop Carlton Pearson, which tells his story of how he was isolated by his religious community because he started to affirm the gospel of inclusion. So again, he was in a situation where he had to reimagine his community. And if you, um, and then Melissa Rogers, um, her book launch on um, C-SPAN Book TV, uh, if you don't read the book, I would definitely recommend watching that. And with that, uh, I think there are a lot of things that we could do to get involved in religious freedom issues and understanding church state. Um, and so I'm going to put this slide up. You can get involved by, you know, signing up for American United's uh, mailing list or the Religious Freedom Center at the same time. Um, if you want to know more about the legal issues, Maggie Garrett, who is our VP of policy, is an excellent resource to turn to. And I say get involved, right? See yourself in the narrative and get involved. Reimagine your community. Reimagine your work. Right now, we're in a very critical moment, and we need people to vote. Um, although I know historically, it has there have been lots of implications, and um, the 2016 election, you know, certainly highlighted that. But it's important that we are engaged and we vote, and that we are counted in the census. And that is so important. As it, the census is important because of the funding um, for organizations the funding for public schools, the funding for our communities. Uh, these are some of the resources and the communities that I lean on and doing the work that I do. And uh, with that, I just want to say thank you. And um, I look forward to your questions. Well, I hope y'all like that. That was exactly what it means to learn from observation, empathy, and humility as community. I certainly hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed all the episodes on where we're headed so far. And if you haven't checked them out, go back and check out what you've missed. And before we go, I want to give a shout out to two people who have worked behind the scenes to really help make this podcast what it is. One of them you already have been introduced to. His name is Burdell Wright. And we have so much coming up. Hopefully you've heard the Good God Gone episode. It's a few episodes back. If you haven't, go back and listen to that. So shout out to him and stay tuned for more of what Verdell has. And also a special shout out to our newest and best assistant producer ever, Dre, who's been working on putting this episode together for the last few weeks as she's a student in her final year at Spelman College. So shout out to both of them. And I hope you continue listening and supporting this show. And we'll see you soon. We'll see you next time on Where We're Headed.